Well, it's a joy to uh, be back at First Presbyterian Church here in Macon. As Chip mentioned, my wife and I were here many, many years ago. Our first son was born here and baptized here. And so we have uh, lots of friends here still. I've seen many of you today, and it's been a great joy to be back here with you. Now, if you have your Bibles, I'd ask that you turn with me to Isaiah 55. Isaiah chapter 55, we believe the Bible, is the infallible, inerrant, inspired Word of God, our only rule of faith and practice. I want to read verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah 55, then a brief prayer. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask now that your Holy Spirit would come down. We pray that he would come with power and authority upon the preacher and upon every one of us here today. Lord Jesus, you know every person here. You know their struggles, their fears, their concerns. You know where they are spiritually. You know if they're hot for you. You know if they're cold or lukewarm for you. Lord, you know all things, and I pray your Spirit would move mightily in each and every one of us, that we'd see Jesus high and lifted up, that we'd glorify him. Now, Lord, also, there may be some here who don't yet know Jesus. Maybe they're churchgoers, maybe they're religious, maybe they're moral. But, Lord, if they're not in Christ, would you graciously show them that, that they might repent and come to the only lover of their souls, the great Savior, the great King Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Aaron Burr, Jr. was a man of remarkable spiritual privileges. His father, Aaron Sr., was a godly man and was the president of Princeton at the time in the 1750s. His mother was Esther Edwards Burr, the daughter of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards of Northampton, Massachusetts. So, of course, his grandparents, Jonathan and Sarah Edwards. Jonathan was perhaps the greatest philosopher, preacher, theologian this country's ever produced. Now, in a remarkable, what we might call, frowning providence, in less than a year, Aaron Bird Jr., who was three years old at the time, along with his sister, were orphaned. His father then his grandfather, then his mother, and then his grandmother all died from illness within a year. Now, Aaron and his sister were taken to live with an uncle in Philadelphia, and they brought them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. 
And then Aaron decided he'd go off to Princeton like his father and grandfather were the presidents. So after he finishes his education, this man with remarkable spiritual privileges says, I'm going to take a year off and I'm going to study all that my father and grandfather believed. Then I will decide whether or not I will follow. After the year was up, he said, no, I do not believe this. So he walked away from his spiritual privileges. And if you know much about Aaron Burr Jr., he turned out to be a scoundrel. You remember the duel with Alexander Hamilton in 1804? He was charged with sedition against the United States many, many times, at least twice, and acquitted. He then traveled to France, and he was such a scoundrel, such a con artist, that Napoleon kicked him out of the country. He says, we don't want your kind here. He was such a scoundrel, and he knew it by the end of his life as he's on his deathbed. He says, now, I'm not worthy to be buried next to my father and grandfather, but would I, I would request that I could be buried at their feet. And if you go to the cemetery in Princeton, you'll find that to be the case even today. He squandered his spiritual privileges. The nation of Israel, to whom the prophet Isaiah is writing, has also squandered its spiritual privileges. They are the people of God. They are in covenant with God. God has loved them with an everlasting love. I will be your God. You will be my people. You're the apple of my eye. They have been remarkably blessed. And yet, for the last 250 years, after Solomon, it actually began with him, there's been this downward slide away from the true and living God. God sends them one prophet after another. They have rejected him. And now the Assyrians are about to overrun the northern kingdom of Israel. Within 18 years, he's writing about 1640, in 18 years, it's all over for the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom hangs on for another 140 years or so, but the same thing happens to them. They had remarkable spiritual privileges, and they walked away. God is bringing up Isaiah to warn them, to urge them to repent, to seek the Lord while he might be found, and in the end, they would have nothing of it. Now, Those of you who've grown up in this church, those of you that have been in this church or another evangelical church for many, many years, it is possible that you too can be squandering this marvelous spiritual heritage. Are you? Are you taking for granted public worship? Do you read regularly the Word of God? Fathers, are you intentionally teaching your children the Word of God, praying for and with them? Are you engaged in the work of the gospel in your community and beyond? Are you engaged in secret sins which you love and you're unwilling to give up? Is it possible that you with these marvelous spiritual privileges, are squandering them just like Aaron Burr Jr., just like Israel, just like Judah. 
And then let's consider the church at large in America. Have we not squandered this glorious, marvelous privilege of the Puritans founding this nation, of God raising up mighty, mighty preachers in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries? Have we not walked away from that in large degree? The church in America today, did you know that only 7% of the American population claims to be evangelical? 20 million people. From where has this come? How have we fallen? How have we squandered this glorious inheritance? And then just consider our nation. In 1630, when John Winthrop got off the Arbella in the Massachusetts Bay, before he got there, he actually gave his great city on a hill speech, which was the Puritan vision for America, laying out what this country ought to be like. And it was founded on great godly men who exalted God, who exalted Christ, who believed in the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet, we have squandered that, and now we live in a nation where the church is utterly disenfranchised, and people are not listening to us, we have no clout whatsoever, and increasingly the world is becoming secular. Our country is secular and godless and immoral. We've squandered it. Where's this going to take us? Now, in that light, what does Isaiah have to say? He says, seek the Lord and he may be found. Now there's an overture of his grace in the first several verses. He says, oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and drink. Without money, without cost, come, buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not food? And why do you spend your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully, eat well, delight yourself in abundance. He's giving them once again, even though they've turned away from him, he's saying, come, come, buy and eat. You don't have to have any money. Just come, bow down before me, delight yourself in abundance. I want to give you the fullness of who I am and they will have nothing of it the overture of his grace but then you'll notice also he gives the actual command seek the Lord while he may be found call upon him while he is near in other words you have an opportunity Israel right now Seek the Lord. You may not have that opportunity tomorrow. In fact, that opportunity went away 18 years from that point, though they did not know it at the time. Seek the Lord while he might be found. You can't always assume that repentance will be given to you. Second Timothy 2 says that repentance is a gift of God. You don't know that you'll repent. And that's what's happening here with Israel. Seek the Lord. Draw near to him. What does it look like to seek the Lord? Well, earlier he uses words like come, buy, eat, drink. In other words, come to me. I am the living waters. Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink and from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Come to me. Seek me. I'm the only one who can satisfy you. What Israel needed to understand was that they were in desperate straits. 
You need to understand today in your personal life, in your family, in the church of Jesus, and in this nation, we are in desperate straits. And until you understand this desperation, until you understand how bad it really is, you will not seek Him. You must seek Him as God shows you the wretchedness of your own life. You remember Jesus is talking to the church at Laodicea, and he says, you think you're rich, and you think you have need of nothing, but I want to tell you, actually, and he's talking to believers here, remember, he says, you are wretched, you are miserable, you are poor, you are blind, you are naked. That's the situation, he says, and until we understand that in our personal lives, until we understand that in the church, until we really see how bad it is in this world, nothing's going to happen. You must seek Him, and you will not seek Him until you are deeply burdened over the status quo. But then He gives us the reasons why we're to seek Him. He says, because my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow fall down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it barren sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return empty from me unless it accomplishes what I called it to do. It will accomplish its purpose. Then he says, now I want you to go out, be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you. The trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. Instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. It will be a memorial of the Lord, an everlasting sign, which will not be cut off. In other words, what God wants us to understand is, I am holy. You have your ways. You have your thoughts. They're evil ways. They're evil thoughts. My thoughts and my ways are higher than your ways. My ways are holy. Your ways are sinful. Look at me. Don't look at yourself. Then he goes on to say, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. I am the sovereign one. You don't always know what's going on. You've gone through a tragedy. You've gone through some difficulty and you have no idea. God, why would this happen? And yet, as you trust Him, as you seek Him, as you move close to Him, He says, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are near to your thoughts. In due time, you will understand that I work all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And He wants us to understand that because we seek Him, we can go out with expectation. We can go out with great joy, knowing that He's directing our every step. He will provide our every need when we close our eyes in death were in the presence of Jesus. Seek the Lord. All right, but what does that really mean? Why is it necessary? How do we do it? Well, what does it mean to seek the Lord? It means that you really are thirsty. You really are hungry. By the way, Everybody is thirsty. 
Everybody is hungry. Now, some seek to satisfy that thirst and hunger in illicit means and in other religions. But everybody is hungry and everybody's thirsty. And so to seek God means you come to realize, I am hungry. I'm not where I need to be in my own personal life. I'm not happy with where the church of Jesus is in this day. And I'm certainly not happy with where the world is in this day. And so God, I want to seek you. I want to pray. I want to give myself to you. Here I am, Lord. Do with me what you will. I'm willing to be a fool for Jesus' sake if necessary. Do you remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4? He says that we are slaves. He says that we are a public spectacle. The Greek word is a theater. People are looking at us. Look at those people. They believe in Jesus. They believe that he really was raised from the dead. They really believe he's the only Savior. Can you imagine people living like that and believing that like that? Let's go watch these people. They're out of their minds. And Paul's glorying in the fact that he's a slave of Jesus. He has no rights. He's given them all up. He's a public spectacle. Not only that, he goes on further and says that we are fools. Do you know the Greek word for fool? Moron. You are in the world's sight a moron for believing what you believe. Then he goes on to say, not only that, you're the scum of the earth and the dregs of all things. And Paul is rejoicing at that. You and I must get to the place where we glory in that. We're not ashamed of the gospel. Now, the only way you can get there is to die to yourself. The only way that you will open your mouth and begin to share Jesus with people is when you're willing to say, I am dead. I'm dead. And it doesn't matter what people say. It doesn't matter what people think. They can call me a moron. They can call me a public spectacle. But I am captivated by this Christ. That's what it means to seek God. Now, years ago, when I was full-time with Presbyterian Evangelistic Fellowship, I had to raise my support. I don't have to do that now, but I did then. And i got to tell you, there were lots of times when it was really lean. And here I am off in Africa for four and five weeks at a time, and I got four, three boys at home, age 14, down to eight. No money. My wife's there with these wild boys, you know, for five weeks at a time. And on numerous occasions when she was in utter despair, she would go into our bedroom and put her face on the floor and cry out, Jesus, help me. That's what I mean by seeking God. Jesus, help me. And a year or so later, when we were asked to come to St. Simon's Island and work with this new church there, she was fearful. She said, I'm afraid that when we go there, and have a, a steady income and around people that, that we really like and so forth. She said, I'm afraid that I'll lose what I've had. This desperation, this utter sense of complete 
dependence upon Almighty God. That's where we need to be. Listen, if you and I will seek God in that way, then He will come with power. And until we seek Him in that way, we're kidding ourselves. Now, why do we need to seek Him in that way? Well, I've got to tell you. Revelation chapter 2. Jesus talking to the church at Ephesus. He says, a lot of things you're doing are good, but I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Have you left your first love? What do you mean? How how do you lose your first love? Well, think back to when you were saved, born again, converted. If you were like me, wow. There was joy. There was excitement. You were hungry for the Word. Listen, you came Sunday morning. You came Sunday night. You came Wednesday lunch. You were in a small group. You were in a growth group and some discipleship group. And not only that, I mean, you could not get enough for the Word. You're over there buying books out of the bookstore all the time. You were in love with Jesus and His Word. And not only that, you also were talking to everybody about Jesus. I mean, your friends thought you'd lost your mind. They thought you were a fanatic. You remember those days? Remember that? I bet few of us have that same zeal today that we did then. So what does Jesus say? Well, if you've left your first love, then you need to repent. And if you don't repent, I'm going to take the lampstand out of its place. The lampstand's the church. Listen, do you know why the church is dissipating in this culture? It's because we've left our first love love. It's because preachers are not preaching, generally speaking. There's wonderful exceptions. Chip is one, of course. But generally speaking, preachers are not preaching Christ crucified. They're afraid of political correctness. They're afraid to use the law of God to speak out against the sins of our culture, sins in the church, sins in the family. And because of that, preachers have been weakened. They've been muzzled. And because of that the church is going down and if it continues if we continue to lose our first love he's going to take the church out of here the first 300 years of the church was strong and vibrant in North Africa Augustine many other great leaders North Africa today is Muslim The Reformation of the 16th century, a mighty movement of God in Europe. If things continue, unless, unless, unless there is a revival bringing about the conversion of millions of Muslims in Europe, it's over for Europe. They will be Muslim in 50 years. And you think that could not happen here. I assure you it can. That is clearly their desire. If you're not serious about seeking the Lord, He will take the lampstand out of His place. He has eyes as a flame of fire. His feet are like burnished bronze which are made to glow in a furnace. 
He will have his name exalted. He will not allow his name to be impugned. He'll go somewhere else. That's why you see the gospel in China, in India now. Praise the Lord. In Muslim countries as well, especially East Africa, mighty movements of God. But you see, we're too smug. We're too hip. We're too cool. We don't need that. We better repent. And if we do repent, then you will begin to see God working in your own personal life and family. Not only will you see him working, he will work powerfully, effectually. You probably have loved ones who don't know Jesus, and it grieves your heart. You pray, you seek God, you believe God, you have neighbors who don't know Jesus. You pray and you seek God, and you ask God to give you opportunities to speak to them. And you ask God to give you the boldness to open your mouth. I know how it is, we're afraid, we're fearful. We don't want people to look down on us. But when you begin to seek God, when you desire Him more than anything else, and He opens you up and He gives you confidence, He gives you faith, He gives you what I like to call, listen to this, He'll give you a divine swagger. A divine swagger. I don't mean some kind of fleshly boldness. I just mean a confidence. You know the truth. Years ago, we, um, when our children were born, we have six children. We have three on earth, and we have three in heaven. Two of our children died in utero at about the age of five months. We had another one who was born with birth defects, and he died after six and a half weeks. And I often wondered back then, God... I'm not upset, of course. I trust you completely, but why did you do that? Why three healthy children who love Jesus, we've got seven grandchildren now, and then three who didn't make it? And I never have quite understood that. But you see, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. goes on to say, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. When you're seeking after him, when your desire is to know him intimately, when you really are seeking the Lord while he may be found, then he begins to give you insight. Then it begins to make sense to you. Then you're able to say, I know that God's going to work all things together for good in my own particular life. Here's my question. Are you seeking God? Is Jesus Christ the great lover of your soul? Do you understand? Listen, a lot of us have been Christians for so long, we sort of forget this. A lot of us think we're actually pretty good. And as we look around us and we see other people, we certainly can see ourselves as better than others. Listen, I don't care how religious you were. I don't care how moral you were. Before you were converted, you were wretched. You were going to perdition. You were going to hell when you died. If you'd been living at the flood, you would have died in the flood. You would have drowned. If you'd been living at the exile, you'd have been taken away into exile. You and I were wretched, no, even the best of us. And yet God came down in mercy and grace, opened your eyes, Gave you the belief, 
gave you the new heart. You could turn from your sin. You repented. You believed on the gospel. Listen, he washed away your filth. Not only has he declared you not guilty, wiping away your sin by his precious blood, but he's also given you his righteousness. Do you know what that means? It means that in Jesus, you are innocent. David, the great adulterer and murderer. Innocent. How can that be? It's one thing to be said, okay, not guilty, but then to be called innocent, righteous, good, pure. It's impossible. But that's the grace of God toward us. Do you see it? Do you understand that you were wretched and God has raised you up? Now, because of that, you and I are debtors to the grace of God. We must take this gospel to our neighbors. We must open up our mouths. And the only way you'll do it is to seek him and to forsake yourself, me included. But what's the motivation? The motivation is Jesus. What a Savior. It's Jesus. Mark 5. Jesus is on uh, with his way with his disciples, and a messenger from Jairus comes and says, Jairus' daughter is sick. Would you come and heal her? Jesus says, yes. A large entourage is following Jesus, Crowds are pushing in against him. As he's walking through the crowd, there's a woman with a hemorrhage for 12 years. This woman has tried everything. She spent all her money. She has nothing left. She's looking for a cure. This is a chronic condition. And she believes that Jesus can heal her. She's thinking to herself, if I can just get up to him and touch the hem of his garment, I'll bet you I'll be healed. All she's wanting is to be healed. She wants to get it and go, kind of like a takeout restaurant. I want to get it, and I'm out of here. That's her desire. And so as Jesus is walking by, she breaks through the crowd, touches the hem of his garment, and immediately Jesus feels power come out of him, and he says, who touched me? And his disciples are kind of thick-headed. They say, what do you mean, Lord? Everybody's pushing against you. What do you mean, somebody who touched you? He said, no, somebody touched me, and this woman falls at her feet, at his feet. Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Listen, the woman is looking for a healing. That's all she expected. That's all she wanted. She's looking for a healing. She got salvation. Peace be with you. Now, Jesus stopped on the way. Jesus is going to a life and death situation, Jairus's daughter. Here's a woman with a chronic condition. Any doctor will tell you that if you've got to choose between somebody with a chronic condition or somebody in a life and death situation, you lay aside the chronic problem for the time being, then you go address the immediate life and death situation. But Jesus did not do that. Jesus stopped. That seems like malpractice. I mean, he could get sued for doing that. But he stops, and sure enough, when he stopped, 
Jairus' daughter died. So Jesus goes anyway. And sure enough, she's dead. People are weeping. Jesus goes into the room, sees her there lying on her bed, dead. And he says, she's not dead, she's asleep. And everybody starts laughing at him. What do you mean? Of course she's dead. Jesus said, get everybody out of the room, except the parents and his disciples. And then it's beautiful what happens. Jesus reaches out with his hand, and he says, little girl, get up. Now, the Greek New Testament is much more vivid. Actually, it's a diminutive term, a term of dear affection. It'd be like me going to my little granddaughter, Bradford. She's taking a nap in the afternoon, and I go up and I rouse her and I say, come on, sweetheart, it's time to get up from your nap. Come on, sweetie, time to get up. That's what Jesus is doing. What a Savior we have. Jairus is looking for a healing. Jesus postponed his coming for a very specific purpose. He's not merely going to heal Jairus' daughter. Jairus wants a healing. He's going to get a resurrection. You look in your own life and there are things happening you don't understand. Tragedy, difficulty that are just beyond you. How can this be? You're wanting a healing. Jesus is going to give you something far more. He's going to give you his fullness. He's going to give you his power. He's going to give you his resurrection power. This is the message the church needs today. This is what you and I need. Now, if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, you need to repent. You might say, well, I'm a churchgoer. I've been, I'm a moral person. I, I think I'm saved. Well, let me tell you this. Ephesians 5 says that no immoral or any impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of of Christ and God. If your lifestyle is one of wickedness, even secret private wickedness, if your lifestyle is one of rebellion against God, you're running around hiding from people what you're doing, God sees it all, you might claim to be a Christian, but if you're living a lifestyle like that, you're not in Christ you do not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. I'm not saying that Christians don't battle sin. Of course we do. But I'm saying if you're given over to it, I'm saying if you try to explain it away as, ah, it's just the way I am, it's not really that bad, you are in big trouble and you must run to Jesus while you can. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Come to Jesus. And if you are in Christ, would you seek him with all your heart that we might see a mighty movement of God again in our day? Let us pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask that you would pour out your spirit in this place. Lord, I pray that you would bring a mighty revival 
in this church and with these people. Lord, you know, my wife, even this morning, was praying for this, for this dear church, which we love so much. And Lord, it's not that this church needs it any more than any other. We all need it, every one of us. Every church needs it. So Lord, I pray that you do that great and mighty work. Hear our prayer. We make it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.